You can give my other suit to the Salvation Army And everything else I leave behind I ain't taking nothing that'll slow down my traveling While I'm untangled in my mind I ain't gonna repeat what I said anymore This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. The state, our government as we know it, revolves around the economy. The state defends the economy, it bolsters the economy, it even corrects the economy when it starts going bad, including by bailing out those who made the economy go south in the first place. With a state totally focused and obsessed with the economy, it should come as no surprise that things like the environment and climate are not a priority. Profit is. After all, if your whole mission is to make money, you likely do it at all costs to the point of not considering the long-term effects of those costs. In the face of the crises we face today, both biological and climatological, we may want to reconsider our economic state and contemplate an alternative that is not as destructive to our planet or ourselves. What if instead of having a state whose sole mission seems to be protecting the economy and forcing the economy with laws, even with violence, as we saw police violently defend property rights over this past summer, what if instead of an economic state, we had some different kind of state. We'll consider an alternative today when we speak with Monthly Review writer Errol Colossi, who posted the article, The Ecological State. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for the weekend? Uh, with the way uh, the winter's been, it's like my life's like a movie. That movie is The Shining. <laughs> are you going to be? We, we all make it through the weekend. Uh, you know things are turning up. How is your labyrinth going in your backyard? I assume that you have some sort of maze that you'll, your dead body will be found in that in the near future. Part of that movie always bug you that it seems a little anticlimactic. For everything else that happened, Jim just sitting there in the uh, yeah alone in the labyrinth. Yeah, even though the next shot of him in the portrait in the photograph is pretty hot. But you're right. That does kind of suck. The penultimate ending does kind of suck. I never thought about it before. You know what I really enjoyed today? Watching a sixty, seventy thousand dollar Jaguar SUV stuck in like a half an inch of snow. And all they were doing was just spinning the wheels and spinning the wheels and spinning the wheels as as if you just accelerated faster, you'd get out of that space quicker. <sighs> This weekend, I'm going to be, finally, we will be, I should say, celebrating Valentine's Day. I know all these holidays are manufactured, artificial, and nothing but advertising attempts by marketers to get us to consume more than we should. But during a pandemic, you know, we'll do anything to make one day seem different <laughs> than the last. Because for the last year, it has seemed like one long, dreary, horrible, awful day. We couldn't celebrate last weekend because... My girlfriend's job is now seven days a week, and she's on some project that I only barely understand. I only barely understand what work she does, and I've been 
working next to her for a year now. I have no idea what we're going to do to celebrate Valentine's Day, but I want to thank listener Daniel, because last week I mentioned maybe taking a romantic bath, but the joists under our bathtub have been creaking a lot lately, and I keep thinking that our third floor bathroom is going to end up on the second or first floor. So Daniel sends a clip of the 1996 film The Arrival with Charlie Sheen, and the clip shows Sheen taking a bath in a rundown apartment building. The ceiling above him begins to leak, and at the last second, he jumps out of the tub as the bathtub from the floor above him crashes through the floor. And then those two tubs crash through to a lower floor. Then those three tubs crash further down and so on and so on in like a five-story building. And it was really frightening. So the romantic bath may be out as Daniel now has me completely freaked out about even stepping foot in our bathroom, let alone our entire building or apartment. More importantly, Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? What's something about you that only the algorithm, in all caps, knows? Only the algorithm knows. It's not something that anybody else knows, only the algorithm. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins... Whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want, you can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to our our question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment of truth. Jeff celebrates Fat History Month. Again, this week's question from hell is what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? Your eyewitness to grief this is hell. G sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com about what was aired last Saturday morning during our time slot on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, which airs the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. here in Chicago. And G was also confused like I was. G writes, I can't find the interview with indigenous rights activist Vernon Belcourt on your website. It was aired this weekend on WNUR. Please let me know how I can hear it again. Thanks for your show, G. The only way you can hear our interviews with Vernon G is, well, we had two. And it's by subscribing, unfortunately, to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Because as of now, that's the only place you can find them online. The, The proceeds from Patreon will partly go toward rebuilding our archives and our website so all of our shows we have ever done will be easily accessible, searchable, and completely free to the public without any paywall. For those of you who do listen to WNUR due to a transition to a new streaming platform or something that the station is doing, they accidentally played some really deep cuts like our interview with Vernon Belcourt, and another with Beth Horman, whose eyewitness story of the U.S.-led coup to overthrow Salvador Allende in in Chile is depicted in the 1982 Costa Gavras movie uh, Missing, where she is played by Sissy Spacek. I didn't even know we had that interview anymore, as I thought it was lost years and years ago. So it was very surprising to hear it last Saturday morning. So if you listen on WNUR, bear with us, mind the dust, as they try to implement a new system so we can still air on the station despite not actually being allowed in their studios due to the pandemic. One last thing, we also got an email from... Mason, who writes Chuck and Alex, something that I find very interesting and sticking to the theme of last week's question from hell that also keeps me up at night, is climate change and its solutions. Economist Robert Pollan wrote a book with Noam Chomsky last year titled Climate Crisis and the Global 
Green New Deal. I think you would make a good guest and discussions over correcting course on the climate are more important than ever. Solidarity, Mason. Thanks, Mason. We did have Bob on our show a few times, but it has been years since he appeared, and he was always great on the show. But like the Beth Horman interview, uh, those interviews are not currently available online anywhere. So maybe if the sound quality is adequate, we'll share our interviews with Beth and our talks with Bob on upcoming Friday Patreon shows. Remember, you too can email, email us, message us via Facebook, tweet at us your thoughts and suggestions on the show. And if you do, we'll likely read them on air. And if you have, if we have your actual guest suggestion on the show, we'll personally thank you on the show for your suggestion. Coming up, the state is geared around the economy, but what if the state revolved around something other than profit? We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth during this week's Moment of Truth. Jeff celebrates Fat History Month. Don't know what that is, but I will learn. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. This week's question again is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have it by the end of today's show. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. We live in an economic state. That is a state that is completely focused on, obsessed with, and revolves around the economy. In fact, the state is the economy in many ways, and separating the two as if the private and public sector are two different things seems futile. But what if the state wasn't so entangled with the economy? What if in this era of global capitalism destroying the planet through climate change and pandemics, we instead had a state that was focused on something else. Here to explain an alternative is monthly review writer Errol Colossi, who wrote the monthly review article, The Ecological State. Welcome to This Is Hell, Errol. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. It's great to be here. This is a fantastic article, and there is absolutely no way we're going to be able to touch on everything in this article over the next 30 minutes. So I just want to make sure that everybody who is listening understands that we're just going to be skimming the surface of the content of this article because there is a lot in here and it's really worth reading even after you hear our conversation today. You write the central problem of economics is scarcity, or at least that is how the story is told. The basic argument is that we have infinite desires but limited resources. And because we cannot have everything we not we want, we must necessarily devise a system to distribute goods and resources, enter the efficient market economy with its prices and wages set by the magical forces of supply and demand, the supposed gatekeepers of the warehouse of economic nirvana. So, Errol, in your opinion, do we have infinite desires but limited resources? Is that basic premise of economics accurate? And if it is not, what does that premise mislead us into believing about economics? Well, um, let, <clears throat> let me start by addressing the second part of your question. Do we have limited resources? Um, so, yes, it's absolutely true that nature uh, imposes uh, absolute scarcities in the sense that there's only so much oil you know, on planet Earth. Uh, the example I give in the article there is there's only so much uranium in the solar system. You know? There's only so much naturally occurring uh, resources. So in that sense, those are um, real hard uh, limits. However, to the first part of your question, do we have infinite desires? Um, no, I don't think we have infinite desires. I think our desires are constrained by our social circumstances, right? So, so what does that mean? They're constrained by uh, your interactions with your family, uh, your friends, your colleagues, uh, society at large, right? including the actions of the state and, and corporations and capitalists. 
Um, all of these things uh, profoundly influence uh, what you want to do in life, what you desire, your preferences, what movie you want to go see, what kind of pizza you like. Um, you can't decouple your preferences from your interactions uh, with uh, wider social forces. Um, so no, I don't think we have uh, infinite desires. And what I was getting at in that uh, first paragraph, which you just read, was so you know, absolute natural scarcities are important. But if you look at uh, uh, the scarcities that actually rule our lives, they're mostly social and artificial. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, take healthcare in the United States. I think this is a, a great example. Um, there are tens of millions of people in the United States that cannot regularly access uh, the healthcare that they need. Okay, and why can't they do that? Well, because healthcare in the United States is, orga is organized around profit, and so in order for the capitalists to score profit, they need to price their goods and services uh, at, at levels where they can score that profit. Now, unfortunately, that prices out tens of millions of people from the market. So what you have in the United States is a situation where tens of millions of people cannot regularly get healthcare. And it's not because we don't have the hospitals or the clinics or the medical infrastructure to provide them that healthcare. It's purely because of how society has uh, uh, been organized through, again, complex interactions between the state corporations and workers uh, and the unique history of the United States. Another example is housing in the United States, right? So we have plenty of houses to end homelessness not an issue of resource availability, right? It's an issue of the economic choices that have been made by those who have uh, strategic and institutional power over the economy. You write that this, especially under capitalism, artificial scarcity is an important social reality that torments the lives of billions around the world. Errol, if it torments, then what explains its sustainability and the apparent tolerance for artificial scarcity? Yeah, I mean, so uh, th this is a, a question that, uh, you know, uh, Marx uh, wrestled with all the way back in the 19th century. You know, uh, where is the great revolution uh, where the workers uh, are going to overthrow the capitalists? Uh, why didn't that happen? And uh, what Marx himself uh, realized uh, more towards the end of his life is that um, capitalists will use a variety of ways uh, to divide workers uh, and to make workers see uh, other workers as enemies. Right. And the point of that division is precisely so that workers don't get together uh, to challenge the institutional power uh, of, of capital. Right. So a great way uh, to understand that is um, look at uh, race in the United States. Um, race in the United States has been used for centuries to divide the white working classes from the black working classes. OK. And um, so what happened, uh, obviously, over the centuries is uh, 10 million um, uh, slaves were brought from Africa to the New World because Europeans needed cheap labor. Okay, they needed cheap labor, and so where did they find it? Uh, since a lot of Native Americans died, indigenous Americans, uh, they brought 12 million um, slaves over. And ever since then, even though slavery ended, the functional role of racial minorities within the capitalist system has not changed, right? They're a source of cheap labor. Okay, that's how capital sees them, okay? And, and in fact, they're sort of the cheapest uh, source of labor. And what capital needs to do is it needs to convince the white working class that in, by keeping this sort of class hierarchy, you benefit, right? Because if we have to you know, uh, increase uh, uh, wages for, uh, for racial minorities, uh, essentially that, that hurts you, right? That leaves less for you, 
because we have to uh, spend more of our profits on investing for racial minorities, that's going to leave less for the white working class. So these kinds of arguments have pervaded American history for centuries. Um, and so, so getting back to your question of why don't people just get together and, and overthrow the system, well, because it's, it's a lot more complicated um, than that. The, the powers that be in the system have a lot of tools uh, to divide the working classes from seeing their common interests. Does that make sense? That's a fascinating answer. Uh, you also write that if ecological instabilities make it difficult for an economy to keep collecting energy, then that economy is susceptible to collapse, even though plenty of energy remains available for consumption. The coronavirus pandemic has painfully revealed this fundamental truth once again. If ecological instabilities are such a threat to an economic system, why is the economy not doing everything it can and more to cause and promote ecological stability? Why isn't the economy working to have the ecological stability that can cause economic stability? Right. Uh, I mean, uh, great question. And, and part of the answer uh, to this question is tied uh, with what I said for the previous question, which is um, the, the powers that be within the system uh, have organized it to generate lots of profits. Uh, and unfortunately, reorganizing uh, the economy uh, in the kind of radical way that you need to substantially reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, right? To substantially reduce energy use. Uh, that kind of radical reorganization of the economy and the time frame that we need would uh, obviously hurt uh, capitalist profits. Uh, and so uh, that's a, a short sort of reason why, why it's not happening. You see this, um, yeah, uh, Germany is a, a, a great example of this. Um, you know, G Germany uh, implemented a a very um, strong energy system about two decades ago designed to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and their goal was uh, you know, to reduce emissions uh, by 2020 to 1990 levels. Uh, and because of the coronavirus, because the coronavirus shut down the economy, they actually met that goal kind of like on a technicality. Uh, but if you look at, um, if you look at what uh, uh, drove uh, a lot of that decline, um, it really wasn't the state pressuring the capitalists to fundamentally change their ways, right? Even though Germany does get a substantial fraction of its energy needs now from electricity, uh, half of the reductions uh, in uh, Germany's carbon dioxide emissions over the last three decades can be attributed to the collapse of heavy industry in East Germany. So, uh, and, and those reductions happened in the 1990s. Uh, after those reductions happened, what, what you see is for a long time, Germany's emissions basically flatlined for about a decade, over a decade. Uh, and Germany actually brought new coal power plants in because the coal industry lobbied the government, pressured the government uh, to, to open up new coal power plants. And so, and, and this story in many ways is repeated all around the world. I mean, you could look at China, right? China on the one hand talks about, um, you know, investing in, in solar and wind and in renewable energies. But on the other hand, over the last decade, they have just been building coal power plants um, like crazy. Uh, and so... Like I said, you can go around the world, country by country. There, there are a lot of good changes happening, but unfortunately, whenever those good changes happen, uh, sort of the institutional powers in the, the system push back uh, and reinstitute a lot of bad changes. Um, and so it, it's kind of like this give and take. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, it's obviously uh, very frustrating and, and a lot more needs to be done. And, and then that's one of the things I hope to talk about, sort of like solutions and proposals and ideas. and. In your solutions and proposals, your ideas, your alternative uh, concepts that you bring up towards the end of your article are really fascinating, although you're 
clearly touching on them here in our conversation already. You write that as industrialized agriculture keeps expanding into pristine habitats, it is dramatically increasing the odds of viral transmission from wild animals to human beings, something that we've discussed on the show several times with different epidemiologists, including Rob Wallace. Does the continuation of industrial agriculture mean more pandemics? Is is our choice with industrial agriculture live with it and have pandemics or get rid of it and experience mass starvation? Do we need industrial agriculture to survive and therefore we cannot avoid a future of more and more pandemics? And I, I know what the answer is to this question, but I want to make sure that our audience understands it. So so do are we kind of stuck if we have industrial agriculture to have more pandemics? Uh, so the, 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 the short answer is, and then I'll uh, expand on this a little bit, is yes. Um, but it, and it's not just uh, the expansion of industrial agriculture. That, that's a part of it. Uh, uh, the other part of it is, of course, the wider ecological crisis that we're facing and, and global warming. Um, and so w- what that's doing is changing ecosystems all around the planet. It's allowing insects, for example, to creep up more and more in northern latitudes. Uh, and that way they're, um, and obviously insects are big carriers of viruses. So you've had a lot of uh, uh, animals, uh, you know, dying off in huge numbers over the last decade and in weird places that you would never expect insects to get to. So a lot of deer in Central Asia, uh, there was a mass die off of, uh, of a certain kind of deer there a few years ago. So in other words, these two interlinked phenomena, yes, uh, the expansion of human civilization and the ecological consequences that result from the expansion of human civilization, because the vast majority of the energy that we consume from the natural world to power our societies, to make our cars run, to make our trains run, our airplanes run, our computers run. The vast majority of the energy is dumped back into the natural world as sort of low-grade energy, you know, whether it's tailpipe emissions or trash or, or things like that, right? And the energy that we dump back to the natural world is not uh, it's useless from the perspective of capitalism because it can't be uh, made into a profit at that point. But it's very useful to, uh, to, to physical systems in the natural world, right? It powers the formation of new physical systems, right? Like stronger storms and, and hurricanes. And, uh, it facilitates the expansion of viruses and bacteria uh, and, and algae blooms uh, from nitrogen runoffs. So, so there's this uh, very complex uh, chaotic balance between uh, what human society does and how that affects the natu- how that affects the natural world, and obviously uh, the changes that are then happening in the natural world will reverberate back on human society. I call these amplifier effects. So, anyway, so, so that's kind of addressing the first part of your question, and then um, I believe the second part of your question was. Should we get rid of industrial agriculture or something like that? I, I don't know yeah, exactly. Like, are we are we so dependent on industrial agriculture at this point that that we if we got rid of it, all of a sudden we would no longer be able to feed the world? So I think um, let me get some water real quick. So so we can't. Yeah, you can't just quite get rid of it. Um. So in the in the article. I talk about um, a new uh, economic system, um, which, I, which I call uh, valorism, uh, and that's a combination of the word valence, which means something like stability and, and regeneration for meaning the regeneration of the natural world. Um, and so uh, valorism is supposed to be kind of a, a new comprehensive post-capitalist system um, that specifically defines what a post-capitalist, a post-capitalist world would actually look like. And so 
let me say a little bit about this because this touches on that question like do we have to get rid of industrial civilization and the short answer is i think no i think there is a way to keep certain aspects of important aspects of industrial civilization and the many benefits that have come along with it such as longer life expectancies uh, more education for people uh, you know better health care um, these are benefits that we should want to keep so i think there's a way uh, I, I think there's a way to do it and But in order to do it, it's going to take a lot more direct intervention from the state. So right now, there are two sort of broad possible solutions uh, to our ecological crisis. Well, there, there are many, but um, I'll, I'll just contrast these uh, for the sake of the argument. So there's what I call the liberal approach, which is the state should provide the right incentives um, to the market, and then the market will respond in the right ways, right? So through uh, technological uh, innovation, uh, human ingenuity, the market will figure it out. All the state has to do is impose the right incentives. So these are people who believe, for example, uh, in carbon taxes, uh, cap and trade uh, uh, schemes. And what the research has shown is that you know, carbon taxes and cap and trade schemes do succeed in lowering uh, carbon emissions. You know, uh, a great example is California's cap and trade uh, that has substantially reduced emissions. Overall, worldwide, what you find is that it's just way too slow. Uh, the, the reductions are, are way, way too uh, slow. There was a study uh, about Norway's carbon tax uh, was implemented in the 90s. That led to a, a 2% reduction of, in emissions over the entire decade. That's way too slow. It's, the IPCC is telling us we need to be at 50% uh, emissions of 2017 levels in nine years. And the reason why a lot of these plants have been too slow, well, there are many reasons, but broadly they're poorly designed. Uh, the price on carbon is too low, and so corporations can uh, simply afford to buy these permits at, uh, at low prices or can afford to pay the carbon tax at low prices and still keep polluting, right? And the worry of governments is that if you take the price too high, well, people aren't going to be, um, then companies are going to pass those costs onto consumers, right? So you'll be paying more at the pump for gas, you'll be paying more for your utility bills and things like that. Um, and so in order to actually make this uh, work, let's say you're gonna go uh, uh, with, with this approach, um, you need a lot more state intervention, a lot more direct state intervention. So for example, you need the state to actually subsidize uh, poor households uh, who cannot afford uh, the, the rising prices, right? Especially if you uh, sharply increase the prices like you need to, like the UN is telling us we need to, if, if you go with this approach. Uh, so you need the state to subsidize poor households so they can actually afford this stuff. Uh, otherwise, if, if, you try to, if you try to set the right incentives, but you don't protect workers, you don't protect the lower classes, um, what you're going to get is just a lot of political and economic instability. Now, so this is the liberal approach. The, the government sets the incentives and the market, you know, through its miraculous technological innovation takes care of it. Um, the main problem I have with this approach is that it's too slow. I think what we need is we need um, what I call, you know, targeted nationalization to some extent or, or targeted centralization. So we need the government to not just impose uh, standards and carbon taxes and fuel efficiency standards and things like that. But we also need the government to go in there and own and control large parts of the economy, right? Control the levers of production and distribution, okay? 
And in controlling those levers, uh, it will be able to sort of turn on and off the parts of the economy that it wants. Now, you have to be very careful about how you do this. Um, so I would like to see targeted nationalization across several major industries, like finance, for example. Uh, I don't know why commercial banks are private. I would like them to be entirely state-owned. Uh, finance, defense, uh, healthcare, oil and gas, meat and dairy, uh, the, the recycling industry. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that much of what they put on their recycling actually ends up in trash. And the reason why it ends up in trash is because the recycling industry doesn't find it profitable enough to sort through all the stuff that you send them. And so they just dump it, or back in the day, they used to sell it to China, trying to stop it in quick sentences. So, so if you look at the market-based solutions, they're very slow. I think uh, we need something uh, a bit more urgent and radical that includes targeted nationalization. Uh, it also includes a reduction in work days. This is another uh, part of, um, um, I think, the Valorous program. So from five work days to four work days, maybe even less than that. Uh, and again, because business profits and revenues will decline, the government will have to step in and subsidize all this stuff. Uh, and if you're wondering, um, if you're one of the poor souls in America who's wondering how is the government going to pay for all of this, uh, the government has something called the central bank, which can create money out of nothing. So the government can never run out of money if, it, if it's fully in control of its own currency. Uh, so the government will just monetize everything, basically. Uh, and it has other levers for controlling inflation, since that's something you have to worry about. So. Um, so reduction in work days, huge investment in energy efficiency is what I'd like to see, uh, huge investment, uh, investment in renewables. Uh, these are sort of like the more broader and, and, and uh, radical points. Uh, now, something that the government can do, let's say you don't want to go, let's say you think this is all pie in the sky, politically unrealistic, which is probably what a lot of people are thinking right now. Well, something simple the government can do is just end the subsidies uh, on fossil fuel companies. Uh, which are costing us tens of billions of dollars every year. And according to one study, um, the subsidies of the federal government on the uh, fossil fuel industry um, make possible half of all uh, domestic oil extractions. So if you just got rid of those subsidies, you could end so much domestic oil extraction in the United States. Uh, subsidies like uh, you know, fossil fuel industries can uh, write off their corporate income uh, uh, drilling costs and depletion costs, so the depreciation of the capital assets. They can just write those off. There's, um, they get this uh, bonus known as a master uh, limited partnership. This is a legal structure, um, which basically uh, a lot of company, uh, uh, makes the company avoid paying any taxes directly, and instead the taxes are paid by the owners of the company. This is an option that's not uh, permitted to renewable energy companies. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, the fossil fuel companies are making out like bandits just from this uh, legal structure, uh, advantage of the legal structure alone. So if you just got rid of some of this, which is not radical stuff, right? Uh, so, so there's, in other words, there's some radical elements to the program, but you can also do some simpler stuff, which is, again, not radical at all, uh, but it just takes the political will to do it. A lot of that would also go a long way um, in, in transitioning to us to a new kind of economy. When it comes to that political will, though, do you see any political will when it comes to ending fossil fuel subsidization? Is fossil fuel subsidization, is that a bipartisan policy right now where Democrats and Republicans, where the Biden administration and the Trump administration agree? Uh, well, uh, you're asking me a tough question about the political system in the United States. I, th I think in many ways, uh, yes, it is a bipartisan policy. Uh, a lot of Democrats will talk a good game about ending uh, stuff like this, but when it comes time to actually do it, 
um, they'll, they'll buckle it a little, a little bit. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, that's that's uh, that's very unfortunate. I just also want to uh, get to these uh, this idea of uh, nationalization, and as you point out, the criticisms of it when it comes to inefficiencies, but also when it comes to uh, centralization. You write that markets under capitalism have routinely produced oligopolies and monopolies, creating many inefficiencies and externalities along the way. In other words, capitalism itself has a tendency to centralize economic planning in the hands of a few powerful corporations, which then control the distribution of resources for other individuals and corporations. Contemporary examples would include the likes of Amazon and Walmart, both of which established prices through central planning for millions or perhaps billions of different commodities. Is the difference then between between a state economy and a private economy, a privatized economy, uh, one that profits from which how they profit from different forms of centralization is is the eventual economic outcome the same, but the only difference is who profits. Well, so I'm 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 uh, I'm glad you asked me that question, and uh, I want to take a little bit to respond to it because I think it helps explain. Um, the need for a new name, why I even came up with Valerism, you know, why not call myself a, a socialist or a, or a Marxist or, or something. So there are many ways to understand uh, the dynamics of any economic system. So you could look at a system, in a, an economy as a system of property rights. Uh, so who controls property? Who makes investment decisions, right? Who hires labor? Uh, is, it, is it the private sector? Is it uh, the public sector? You know, is it Stalinism where the government controls everything? Is it Singapore uh, where the, the government sort of, you know, at least behind the scenes, uh, or at least in front of the scenes, doesn't do much, but behind the scenes does a lot. Uh, so, so you can look at capitalism as a system of property rights. In other words, who owns property, who controls things. Okay? But you can also look at an economic system as a biophysical system. Uh, what does that mean? That means you can look at how much energy it's using, uh, how much energy it's dumping out. Right? So you can look at its efficiency. You can look at uh, what it's doing with that energy, uh, how it's organizing energy production. So you can look at an economy as a biophysical system. And if, if you look at history, what you find is that uh, both Western nations that have been, you know, quote unquote, free market uh, uh, economies, they haven't really been free market economies. And we can talk more about that, about the efficiency arguments uh, for the market, which I think are uh, bogus. So both of those nations and, uh, you know, nations that have had a history of strong nationalization, like the Soviet Union, like China, both of those have been geared towards industrialization. It's an increase in energy use, growth. The way they've done it is through a different system of property rights. So in the Soviet Union, for example, the government was control uh, of a lot of things. You know, in the United States, a lot of decisions are made uh, by capitalists in the private sector. But what you find in both systems is uh, this sort of uh, uh, tendency to grow. And you see it in China as well today. So um, I think the critical part uh, of, of Valerian is setting uh, constraints on energy use. And I said specific constraints in the article. Uh, and the idea is that the government should actively measure and control uh, the aggregate energy usage of an economy. Okay? And, and part of the way it needs to do that is through some of these uh, plans that, uh, that, that I talked about earlier, right? So targeted nationalization and, and all these things. So, so th this is another key difference uh, uh, to remember. Uh, when we talk about the system. It's, it's just uh, seeing an economy as a biophysical system in addition to seeing it as a system of property rights. Now, what would Valorism look like as a system of property rights? Well, it would basically be a hybrid economy. So the government would be in large charge, uh, in charge of 
certain large and critical sectors of the economy, and I identified some of those sectors earlier, okay, but there would still be uh, a private sector, right? So you would still be able to go to McDonald's and get your fries. Uh, nobody's going to take McDonald's away from you. Uh, you would still be uh, able to do the things uh, that you otherwise uh, enjoy. It's just the state is going to have more direct impact over economic activity, and it needs to have that direct impact in order to control aggregate energy, energy use. So one of the things that you talk about is the how everything kind of changed when we started having the apologists for capital. Like in the 1990s, the Bill Clinton administration issuing new tax rules about CEO salaries that wound up incentivizing companies to pay their executives through lucrative stock packages, through these and other actions. The state encouraged massive wealth redistribution toward capitalists and away from workers. Once the apologists of capital took over the state, there was little doubt about who would benefit is did this all begin with Reagan or were there always apologists for capital? And is the difference today that the apologists for capital are in both parties, that apologizing, again, is something that has become bipartisan? Yeah, uh, to, to that last question, yes, there's certainly in both parties. Um, as to when it started, I mean, in a political sense, you can say it started with Reagan uh, in the 1980s, but then you can always ask, well, what caused Reagan? Why did Reagan come to power? And then you have to go back to the 1970s and look at the changing uh, dynamics of the global economy um, and, uh, you know, and increased competition from foreign firms and, and, and all these other things. Um, uh, uh, inflation uh, from, um, uh, from uh, especially from oil prices, which then caused inflation throughout the entire economy as a result of the, the October War in 1973 uh, and then the Iranian Revolution later in the decade. So you can look at all these crises, which uh, eventually made uh, a lot of people lose faith in the uh, post-war capital labor compromises, uh, and and eventually went to to somebody like Reagan, who told them the government is the problem. Um, you know, same thing with Thatcher in Britain, uh, which started a huge private uh, privatization wave. So the British government used to own a lot of major industries, things like British Airways and Jaguar and, and things like that. Those were all owned by the British government back in the day. Uh, and, and Thatcher, you know, privatized all of that stuff. Um, it's fascinating. There was a paper um, in the 1990s, which I cite in the article, um, and it looked at, uh, it compared efficiency between uh, the government, uh, when the government owned the British companies and the privatized versions of the British companies. And the reason why I did this is because, you know, the standard argument against nationalization, you'll see this over and over again, is that the market is just more efficient at allocating resources. Okay, so let me address this argument for a little bit. Um, the first problem is, what do you mean by efficiency? Uh, there are many different definitions of efficiency out there, and economists use those different definitions in their studies. So obviously, if you're measuring different things, you run the risk of getting different conclusions. Um, one of the definitions used in the study uh, that I cited was uh, efficiency is the rate of return on capital. Okay, in other words, uh, the profits that you get from the capital that you employed. Anyway, so uh, it, it looked at the, that metric and it found there was basically no major difference between the government-owned companies and the, and the private companies. So and it had another metric, and it found no major differences there either. And there was no evidence to support the conclusion that the private companies, the private British companies, were somehow more efficient than the government one. Now, so that's one conclusion. But you can also attack the very definitions themselves. Um, so notice the rate of return on capital, right? 
the profits uh, that you get from the capital that you employ. Uh, the problem is that the way that uh, economists measure the capital that they employ is they look at the uh, sort of the sale value or the price value of the of the capital goods that you're using. So the robotic arms that are used in factories to make stuff, right, or uh, you know other machines that are used in the production process. They, they they just look at the financial value of that stuff. But the problem is that the financial value of capital assets depends on the profit rate. Okay, you can't decouple those two things. In other words, if a company is really profitable is riding high, is doing really well, its financial assets are going to be worth a lot, right? And so you, you can't then say that the profits were caused by the financial assets because the financial assets themselves were partially caused by the profit rate and the performance of the company. So that's, that's one problem. The other bigger problem though, with the idea that um, the market is efficient is capitalists are not responsible uh, for their profits uh, through their uh, miraculous actions or through the hard work. Uh, so let's take some uh, concrete examples. Look at the American International Group, AIG. Right? This is a big multinational company. It insures a lot of risky financial assets. Okay, uh, during the Great Recession, AIG had a major meltdown uh, and the government had to step in with almost $180 billion to save it and the rest of the financial system. Okay, $180 billion. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, let's say 2019, AIG had profits of three to four billion dollars. But can you really say that those profits were due to AIG's actions versus the fact that the government saved the company in the first place, uh, you know, 10 or 11 years ago? Uh, no, right? You can't credit the, the profits to the capitalists themselves. Uh, another example is um, uh, GM, right? So the government uh, saved the auto industry as well as part of the Great Recession. In 2016, GM had profits of $13 billion. And you might say, wow, GM is so innovative and you know, uh, selling things that, uh, that people want. Well, sure, but why did GM survive in the first place? It's because the government saved it by giving the auto industry $80 billion. Uh, so you, you cannot decouple the profits of capitalists from the influence of, of, uh, of state power. Um, and so this is another reason why these efficiency arguments are, are nonsense is because uh, the, the profits depend on so many social and institutional forces, right? The actions of the treasury, uh, of the central bank. Uh, all of these things are extremely, extremely important um, in, uh, in, in setting profits. Obviously also the, the suppression of wages and benefits for workers, that, that's a critical one. Um, so, so yeah, so I think the efficiency argument uh, against nationalization is uh, completely useless precisely because no one can really tell me uh, exactly how efficient any given company is, considering that its profits are widely entangled uh, with a state apparatus. And you point to almost this kind of war that the West and the United States is engaged in on any nationalization project that happens anywhere around the world, which is a really fascinating part of your writing. And I want to make sure everybody go checks out Errol's writing. Uh, Errol is a monthly review writer, and he posted the monthly review article, The Ecological State. I have one last question for you, Errol. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that throughout the crisis, the people of the United States, the pandemic, have received a painful reminder that the distribution of economic resources, including jobs, is largely a product of social policy, not the preordained outcome of impersonal economic laws waltzing their way through history. So President Clinton's political advisor, James Carville, famously coined the phrase, it's the economy stupid, as one of his three messages for the 1992 Clinton presidential campaign. It was meant to 
convey a message of support for workers during what was an ongoing recession. But what happens when your message is, it's the economy, stupid, blaming the economy for whatever problem is being experienced instead of social policy, which you see as having the real impact on jobs? What happens when we look at only the economy and we ignore social policy? Um, well, I, I think a lot of things happen. So this is a very complicated question, obviously. So, um, one thing that happens is you, uh, you tend to, to focus on the wrong things. Um, so yeah. one thing that's happened with the mainstream version of environmentalism in the United States is all environmental problems have been framed as kind of uh, personal problems. In other words, uh, what can you do to reduce, uh, the, the use of straws or how can you reduce your plastic use? Or uh, how can you be, you know, how can you recycle more, and how can you get more composting done on the side, and, and all these things. Um, and and to me, that is just fundamentally the wrong frame to have. It's not like those things aren't important. You can worry about those things. It's fundamentally the wrong thing to have. Uh, what you need to ask is how is society organized, right? How is society organized? That's that's what truly matters. Another wrong framing that results from the, the question that you asked is. Uh, you know, that it's all about technological innovation, right? The technological innovation is going to get us out of this crisis. Uh, and I just, and that's something that we didn't uh, really touch on much in the interview. I, I wish we had. Uh, but again, it's, it's such a profoundly uh, flawed uh, argument. A, a lot of the technologies that are being proposed uh, to save us uh, from all of this, or whether it's uh, you know uh, carbon capture uh, and storage, uh, whether it's uh, uh, fuel cells or, or all these other things, like. Um, they're such a long time away from being scaled uh, to what we need for them to actually make a major impact uh, that, it's, that it's ridiculous to, to even uh, worry about. What we need to do, because we only have about two or three decades to get it right, is we need to fundamentally and radically restructure how society works. Right? So that means we need to fundamentally restructure who makes important economic decisions. Uh, who decides what we invest on? Who decides how much energy uh, certain sectors of the economy will use? Um, uh, how are profits distributed, right? How do workers fit into all of this? How are companies organized? Uh, this is really what we need to focus on. And technological innovation can be there along for the ride. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer uh, that we should be investing in, in renewables and in energy efficiency improvements. Uh, and again, something uh, else that we should we have more time to discuss. But, but the first important thing is you have to reorganize how society works. If you keep this emphasis on growth, on profits, then what you're doing is you're giving license uh, to capitalists to use as much energy as possible, okay? Because that's really the way that they're going to get growth in the long run. Look, a capitalist can make five apples, sell them for $5 today, uh, get $25, right? Can also make five apples next year and sell them for $50 and make $250. So they can keep production constant and just raise prices through inflation and make more money that way. But the problem is that's unstable. Uh, if you have too much inflation, society just becomes highly destabilized and there's revolution that it's crazy. So what capitalists have typically done is they've uh, expanded uh, through production, uh, by increasing production. They just make more stuff. And obviously that requires more energy. And so what we really need to get a hold on is that tendency, right? Is that tendency on increasing energies. And this is a problem that goes beyond just greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, even if you get rid of the greenhouse gas emissions, I had a thought experiment in another article uh, that I wrote. Let's say you get rid of all greenhouse gas emissions and you run the world uh, with solar panels that you've installed uh, all over the planet. 
Uh, if you have this tendency for growth, eventually you're going to reach a point where all the solar panels have reached their maximum theoretical efficiencies. And if you want to produce more electricity, you have to build more solar panels. Well, there's only so much finite surface area uh, on planet Earth. So then what are you going to do? Build solar panels on the moon, uh, in the sky? There are actually proposals like that. But, I mean, it, it gets a bit ridiculous, right? So the, the fundamental point is we have to curb uh, this tendency for growth and we have to focus on stability. This is, uh, this is the big message of Baylorism. We have to focus on a program of stabilization, right? And that means restricting energy use around to a, to a certain value. It doesn't mean degrowth. I want to emphasize that. Uh, some economies like India, for example, can still uh, grow a little bit more just because their, their per capita energy use is so much. But a lot of the wealthier nations, the more powerful economies, their per capita energy use needs to come down. So, so it doesn't mean degrowth. I like to avoid that word specifically. It's another reason why I came up with a, a new term. Um, uh, it, it just means uh, reorganizing the economy around stability. Errold, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. We've been speaking with Monthly Review writer Errold Colossi, who posted the article, The Ecological State. And if you want to learn more about Valorism, you definitely have to check out this article. It's incredibly enlightening. And even though Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative, Errold proves that there there is an alternative. And there are many alternatives. And Errold's is a fascinating one. And you should definitely check out his article again at Monthly Review, The Ecological State. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Our weekly Patreon podcast streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago Times podcast. Same place shortly after tomorrow on Patreon. We're playing our August 2007 interview with the late, great journalist James Ridgway, who passed away last weekend. James was on to talk about his cover story at Mother Jones at the time, In Search of John Doe Number 2, the story the feds never told about the Oklahoma City bombing. Federal officials insist that the Oklahoma City bombing case was solved back in the 90s, but a Salt Lake City lawyer in search of his brother's killers has dug up some remarkable clues on cross-dressing bank robbers, the FBI, and the mysterious third man. Ridgway writes of the Salt Lake City attorney... He has become an American archetype, this citizen investigator still propelled by the sense of justice that first drew him into the law, but no longer convinced of the government's ability to see that justice is done. Meanwhile, I am being gaslighted. Gaslit? I don't know. That is, someone is manipulating me psychologically into questioning my own sanity. Who would do such a thing? I mean, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. Why would anybody be so cruel to me? What did I do to deserve this? But you can only learn the who, what, and why of my gaslighting in our here our interview with James Ridgway on yet another suspect in the Oklahoma City bombing by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Aram K., Brian P., Stefan B., and Richard L. Thanks, Aram, Brian, Stefan, and Richard. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff celebrates Fat History Month. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us if we have any more answers. Mother Jones, that's a name I haven't thought about in quite some time. I know, right? Back in 2007, it was kind of a thing. What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? What is something about you that only the algorithm knows? Austin RM says, the amount of times I attempt to come up with an answer to the question from hell. Caveat says, I'm a sex addict and I don't want to change. (laughs) Via DM, email, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Flying Needle says, the algorithm is really my dad. Nope, not your mom, my dad. 
Kobias says, what I'm going to do next? Neil C says, oh my god, I'm married to the algorithm. <laughs> Adam B says, fetishes, fantasies, and in late 2019, that if I already liked X, Y, and Z other podcasts, I might want to try one I'd never heard of before called This Is Hell. Shout out to the app Podcast Addict. Hmm. Frack Lou Elmo says 50 different ways of misspelling bourgeoisie. I really identify with that one. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, one of my questions from hell one day was going to be, how do you spell bourgeoisie? <laughs> Without looking, I cannot do it. Uh, I finally was able to do it this week, I think, for the first time. Just write rich people. Uh, <laughs> Hypocrite Reader says, this question sounds like just another devilish trick by the algorithm. Get me to reveal my deepest secrets. Not falling for that one. We've got a couple more. Let's uh, hit them after Jeff. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Fat History Month. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. My mom always said that one day I'd wake up fat. I don't know why she said that, but she was right. What she didn't say was that the forces of history would be responsible for my infattening. I'm writing this on Fat Tuesday, known in Acadian French as Mardi Gras. This year my birthday came one day before Mardi Gras. I've been told I can celebrate my birthday all month, which would make this month unofficially Fat History Month. At the dawn of Fat History stands the Venus of Willendorf. At the end lies Rush Limbaugh, dead of lung cancer. If we saw Fat History as a straight-line journey from Venus to Rush, things would look pretty bleak. Luckily, we have many branchings of the past, tangents and cotangents, wendings and wigglings, complexities and convolutions, as we've come to the final fractal array of fatnesses today. In the past, we had the proud obesity of prosperity. Today, we have the shameful obesity of poverty. Such a contrast of fatness and what it signifies belies the rich, buttery goodness of the truth. Nothing is ever as simple as it seems. Lizzo is a hot, shiny, body-positive, rapping flutist, not flautist, while the comparatively slim, clownish Tracy Morgan suffers from diabetes. Fat and slim evoke reactions based on the mores of the moment. It's amazing how short-term such judgments are, and how little time it takes for the advertising wing of the food establishment to steer collective values toward what they need us to desire. We are a fickle hive mind, a hive mind easily led by the nose. The slender young woman has been a sexy, light-hearted flapper or a waifish hippie chick, both of them out for a good time, an anorexic or bulimic victim of her own neuroses, a drug addict, a slave with no will to resist, a poised, dangerous, seductive model who's also a spy or a gullible, soft-hearted film star sucked in by seditious rhetoric and finally caught in the secret policeman's trap. But buried deep under layers of adipose tissue is where the golden woman resides, the matriarch. Mama Cass was everyone's mother, nobody's lover. Rotundity stabilizes a woman. It gives her a center of gravity. It makes her practical. 
while the wind might blow away the willowy waif. The large woman will anchor her house firmly to the ground during the hundred-mile-an-hour winds of a hurricane. But her obesity is also a sign of weakness, as it is with men. The fat man, though, has no stabilizing virtue. His lot is the pratfall, gullibility, the career ruined by orgies, indulging the desires he ought not dare acknowledge. Fat men transgress if they aim too high. The fat woman never finds herself ruined because she never achieves success in the first place. She's too practical to nurture ambition and too unseductive to sleep her way to the top. Fat men can be sultans, but never emperors. Was Nero fat? Seems like he was. But generally, emperors rule with strength. Sultans enjoy women, silks, figs, jewelry, and rule by merely displaying their wealth. Fat rulers are ostentatious and foolish. Slender rulers are conquerors. Queen Victoria was fat. If it weren't for her reputation for priggishness and eschewing of pleasure, she might have been a figure of ridicule. Maybe she was anyway. Maybe she looked down on frivolity because she was never invited to partake in it. Meanwhile, first peoples of the tundra are always happy, delighted by their children, in harmony with their inner worlds as with the outer. In Hawaii, I'm told, big fat people let it all hang out. They're all over the beaches, looking cheerful and unashamed. How would history have been different if a chaste, dour, elephantine queen of England and a generously proportioned queen of the islands had been lovers? Western women with wealth who are fat are pitiable if proud. Island women who are fat are giving, smiling, bearers of mangoes. Tarzan is lord of the jungle. He's what they call a well-proportioned man. But who is his lady? Not Jane. She's married to the lord of Greystoke Manor. The lady of the jungle must be the fat lady, laden with flowers, gathering fruits, friend to exotic birds, the hornbill, the toucan, the lorikeet, the lyrebird. She grinds the flower, prepares the psychedelic roots for the shamanic ceremony. Where her physical body is burdened with too much girth to pass, she can travel with ease as formless energy. The guru cannot be fat, though many are. Sai Baba was a bony, austere man in a drab dhoti, a white scarf wrapped around his head, living in a stone cell, eating nothing but air. He opened his mouth once and produced a glowing green jeweled egg bigger than his head. He was a real man of the higher realm. By contrast, the fat, grinning, afro-headed, colorfully robed and beaded Satya Sai Baba, ironically named as Satya means true, and he was clearly the false one of the two, lived richly on the gross plane of existence. Eggs went into his mouth, but never came out. One gives alms to the emaciated beggar. A fat beggar will have to wait till he drops the poundage. One of Donald Dump's signature features is his obesity. The fatter he looked, the more disgusted we were, even though what was truly disgusting were his mind and soul, his words and commands, his lawsuits, excuses, denials, accusations, bullying, grifting, embezzling, bragging, insecurity, empty bluster. He was the opposite of a fat woman. A fat woman would never have been elected president nor a thin woman or a midland woman, apparently. Fat presidents get stuck in their bathtubs, or they clearly wear diapers while gothling. 
Trump didn't need to be fat. Could have hated him just as much if he hadn't been. It's just another line he crossed, just for the hell of it. Bill Clinton was fat for a while, I'll remind you. But we chalked that up to his appetite for everything. Sex, liquor, food, power. Somehow this joie de vivre never applied to Trump. He never seemed to enjoy anything. So it was really our disgust for him that made his obesity objectionable, not the other way around. He couldn't pull off fatness. He made it look moribund, the way he couldn't wear a suit to save his life. Nor any other clothes, nor none. He was in no wise materially centered, and we never allowed him to be. And yet, still, he lives. Maybe he isn't done disgusting us yet, but neither are we finished tormenting his flesh. Hugo Chavez was no slim Jim, but he was raised on manioc and other starches. He earned his fat during his oppressed upbringing. Maybe Idi Amin did too, but his girth was intimidating. His joie de vivre had driven him syphilitically mad. Fat bikers are the most serious of fat men. They ride hogs. There's mad fat and there's sane fat. There's earned fat and there's lazily accumulated fat. There's happy fat and there's sad fat. There's practical fat, there's frivolous fat, there's responsible fat and irresponsible fat. There's tough, bitter fat and sweet, ticklish fat. Try to remember during Fat History Month that we each contain the entire spectrum of fat. If you are human, you are part fat even if you think you're 100% muscle. Remember that a woman must be fat before she's a mother. We all descend from the Venus of Willendorf, that globe of origin. You can fear fat, you can shun fat, but I'd advise you to embrace fat. Fat is in you. When will Fat History Month be over? Maybe never. It bursts its limits. It ain't over till the Venus sings. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Hugo Chavez delivered my pizza the other day. Really? Yes. I was very excited about it. That is very exciting because he, you know, apparently socialism works. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and it delivers a really good pizza, too. Okay. All right, Jeffy, until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. And if you want to actually see the border... Well, between the lands they've stolen from the Potawatomi people and white people, it's up right over here at Indian Boundary Park, which is called Indian Boundary Park because it was an Indian boundary. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? Only the algorithm knows. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell? Uh, yeah, but first of all, you're probably not going to like dedicating airtime to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you get your pizza from, Chuck? Oh. You could tell me off mic if you don't want to promote them. How about Jordan's favorite place? <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine gave me the tip. I don't like promoting anybody on the... All right, it's a local business. Why not? Uh, Nuevo, Italy. Over, I think it's 7,000 North Clark. I can't remember. Maybe it's Western. Uh, they, that's the best pizza I've had. I know you're a huge fan of Eastern-style pizza. It's not a style. It's the name of a uh, pizza joint here in Chicago. Uh, and they are... That's really fantastic uh, pizza and really good sandwiches. But I think I might like Nueva pizza a little bit more. So what's this week's question, Melanie? What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? 
old friend eat first 69 says i secretly want an elderly chihuahua <laughs> max says the amount of captcha bullcrap i'm willing to put up with for any reason I, you know, I find those things deeply calming. I could sit there for uh, hours and just uh, oh, on what is a bicycle and what is not a bicycle. Try to do that with low vision, my friend. You know how many times I get those things wrong? They're like, is there a car in this picture? And I'm like, well, there's, <laughs> I see a bumper in a corner. Is that a car? Does that qualify as a car? Uh, how many ones? How many of these do you see a red light in? I, I don't know. I can't see red. Anyway. What I'm listening to in my headphones, it's just a woman's voice reading the Wikipedia article list of sweet corn varieties it's from Wonder Drum. And finally, Rock Taster says that I broke into Chuck's porch. <laughs> hey, what was Yuck. Eat Fart 69 again? Uh, that was, I secretly want an elderly chihuahua. <laughs> That's really good. Um, if you broke onto my back porch right now, you'd be standing in a four-foot snowdrift, and I'm really concerned that my back porch is no longer to be my back porch in the very near future. Uh, the answers I liked the most were uh, Kobe saying to the question from hell, which is, what is the thing that only the algorithm knows about you? What I'm going to do next? I thought that was good. Uh, Neil saying, oh my God, I'm married to the algorithm. Frack Lou Elmo saying 50 different ways of misspelling. <laughs> Bourgeoisie, a hypocrite reader saying this question sounds like just another devilish trick by the algorithm to get me to reveal my deepest secrets, not falling for that one. Uh, the Wonderdrome saying what I'm listening to in my headphones, it's just a woman's voice reading the Wikipedia article list of sweet corn varieties, which I really liked. Uh, the amount of CAPTCHA BS I'm willing to put up with for any reason, according to Max. Benjamin saying sometimes in the middle of the night, I go to the downstairs bathroom that my kids use and replace the two-ply toilet paper with single-ply. I really like that. Jacob saying, my gender. Any one of those do you really like the most, Alex? I deeply identify with not being able to spell bourgeoisie. So <laughs> for me, it was either that one or the uh, list of sweet corn varieties, because after I read that comment, I went on uh, Wikipedia and I read that list of sweet corn varieties. Pretty good corns over there. <laughs> I know. Those are the two that I was really torn with. I also like the <laughs> changing of the toilet paper from two-ply to one-ply. That's really good, too. I'm going to go with... Jeez. Let's go with... The, just, just so you, you pointed to it, it was been bothering me. The 50 different ways of misspelling bourgeoisie. If this is your name, Frack Lou Elmo, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and which piece of merchandise, this is Hell merchandise you want, and we will get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. Congratulations on winning this week's Question from Hell. My answer to this week's Question from Hell, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? I apparently have a raging desire to go on a diet by subscribing to a food delivery service that sends me all my meals daily, which is something I cannot afford and would never do as the packaging and carbon footprint of the entire process sickens me that's this week's question from hell thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question we start every week's live streaming shows here at this is hell.com with alex revealing this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure is bloody tomatoes on toast thanks to all of this week's guests including historian sabello j in lovu gacheni who wrote the Black Citizenship Forum article, Black Citizenship and the Problems of Coloniality, which you can find at blackagendareport.com. And if you did not hear that interview, you definitely got to go back and listen to it. Thanks to yesterday's guests, Sierra Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert, co-authors of Venezuela, The Present as Struggle, Voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. So if you really want to know what is happening in Venezuela, don't read the New York Times. But you can find their writing at venezuelanalysis.com and you can find their book, whatever, again. 
Venezuela. The President's Struggle by Sierra Pasquale Marquina and Chris Gilbert. Thanks to today's guest, Errold Colossi, author of the monthly review article, The Ecological State. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2007 conversation with the late, great journalist James Ridgway, who passed away last weekend. And I will be revealing the who, what, and why of my gaslighting. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you this week. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words. Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>